Hey everyone, this is an example of our Physiology by Physio podcast. It's its own show, but we wanted to throw an episode here to give you an example of it for Study Smarter Fest 2021 for the USMLE Step 1. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts, but honestly, the best place to experience Study Smarter Fest is in our mobile app. You can get all four of the podcasts that we have to help you study on the go for step one during dedicated prep season, mindfulness meditations, bonus content, everything organized into neat playlists, and of course, for premium subscribers, access to our all audio QBank. Just search your app store for Inside the Boards and happy studying. Let's start off this episode on thyroid hormone with some anatomy and some embryo. So first question, where does the thyroid gland come from? Well, the thyroid diverticulum arises from the endoderm, so the same as gut tissue, uh, at the floor of the primitive pharynx. So where does it go from there? Well, it then descends from the base of the tongue, or the foramen cecum, down into the neck, just beneath the thyroid cartilage at the level of C5 to T1. So how does the developing thyroid gland find its way down into the neck? Well, as the developing thyroid gland descends into the neck, it moves through a duct called the thyroglossal duct. The thyroglossal duct connects from the base of the tongue, hence thyroglossal, all the way to the final resting place of the thyroid beneath the thyroid cartilage. So why do we care about this thyroglossal duct? Well, after the thyroid descends, if the thyroglossal duct doesn't fully close, then it can get filled with fluid and form thyroglossal duct cyst, which can easily get infected. Another variation related to the thyroglossal duct, if the terminal portion of the duct doesn't close off, then you can form a midline remnant of thyroid tissue, which we call a pyramidal lobe. About 50% of the population has a pyramidal lobe of the thyroid. But regardless, for the boards and the wards, remember that the thyroid gland descends along the midline. So if you see a midline cyst of the neck that moves with swallowing because of its connection to the base of the tongue, then it's a thyroglossal duct cyst. But a lateral cyst of the neck is probably a branchial cleft cyst, which has a totally different etiology. Okay, next point about thyroid anatomy here is about its blood supply. The thyroid gland secretes hormones directly into the blood, hence it needs to be well vascularized, right? The main arteries that supply the thyroid are the superior thyroid artery, which is the first branch of the external carotid artery, and the inferior thyroid arteries, and these come from the thyrocervical trunk, which is a branch of the subclavian artery. In about 10% of people, you can also see a normal variant of this blood supply. Do you remember what I'm talking about here? Well, 10% of people have a normal variant called the thyroid ema artery, which helps to supply the middle part of the gland, i.e. the thyroid isthmus. When present, the thyroid ema artery is a branch of the brachiocephalic trunk off of the aortic arch. Okay, cool. Because the thyroid gland is so well vascularized, surgeries and biopsies of the thyroid are notoriously bloody ones. Additionally, during thyroid surgery, there's a significant risk of cutting a special nerve. Do you remember what nerve this is? Well, it's the recurrent laryngeal nerves, which are branches of the left and right vagus nerves. These nerves descend into the thorax, and then the left recurrent laryngeal nerve hooks around the aortic arch, while the right hooks around the subclavian artery. They then both ascend back up into the neck to innervate the larynx, hence the name recurrent laryngeal. Anyways, so why is this nerve significant? 
Well, if we cut one or both of them during thyroid surgery, then we can compromise the airway by severing the nerves to the posterior cricoarytenoid muscles of the larynx. These are the muscles that open up the vocal cords, hence their function is crucial for airway patency. So during thyroid surgeries, we want to be very careful not to cut the recurrent laryngeal nerves. Awesome. So that's embryo stuff and blood supply. The last anatomy point that I want to cover here is about innervation to the thyroid gland itself. So the thyroid gland is innervated by branches of the sympathetic trunk in the neck, but to my surprise, this autonomic innervation doesn't really affect thyroid hormone release. Instead, thyroid hormone release is just controlled by a hormonal axis, which we'll cover in the next section. For now, let's briefly recap. So, like we said, the thyroid gland is derived from the endoderm at the base of the tongue or the foramen cecum. It travels down the thyroglossal duct to arrive at its final position just beneath the thyroid cartilage. Thyroid surgeries are notoriously bloody because they're so well vascularized. Also, during thyroid surgery, we want to be careful not to cut the recurrent laryngeal nerves because these innervate the muscles that help us to open up the vocal cords. Okay, cool. Now let's begin a discussion of number one, the hormonal regulation of thyroid hormone production, number two, thyroid hormone synthesis, and number three, the cells within the thyroid gland. So the thyroid hormones consist of thyroxine, or T4, and triiodotyrosine, or T3. And these are synthesized in the thyroid follicles. And you can see the lumen in the middle and the cells surrounding the lumen. And this whole thing is called a follicle. And a follicle is made up of several cells. But for the purposes of this discussion, we will be focusing on just one follicular cell. So here we have a follicular cell. And we have the blood on this side and the lumen on this side. So iodide enters the cell through a sodium iodide pump. It's a symporter, so it brings sodium and iodide in the same direction. So iodide is then exported into the lumen of the follicle and is converted to iodine, or I2. And the enzyme that does this is called peroxidase. So meanwhile, tyrosine is being converted to thyroglobulin and then exported into the lumen. And it is here that iodine and thyroglobulin combine. So this process of combining iodine with thyroglobulin is called organification. And remember that to be organic, a compound must contain carbon. And thyroglobulin has carbon, therefore it can make iodine organic by combining with it. And the enzyme that's responsible for combining thyroglobulin with iodine is peroxidase. And peroxidase will then take these and it will make monoiodotyrosine or diiodotyrosine. And one molecule of monoiodotyrosine and a molecule of diiodotyrosine will make T3 or triiodotyrosine, while two molecules of diiodotyrosine will make T4. So when stimulated by TSH, these final thyroid hormones will be exported from the lumen into the blood, and they can then act on the tissues throughout the body. So now let's apply this knowledge. Let's say there's a child who's been exposed to radioactive iodine, and this is circulating throughout the body. And having this in the body will increase the child's risk of developing thyroid cancer, because the thyroid can of course take up this radioactive iodine. So the question is, 
pharmacologically, what could you do to prevent the thyroid from absorbing this radioactive iodine? Okay, so the goal in this instance is to block the radioactive iodine from being taken into the follicle, and there are a few ways you can do this. The first option would be to administer a high dose of potassium iodine. So this will then overwhelm the sodium iodine pump, effectively blocking the radioactive iodine from using the symporter and entering the follicles. So now going back to the function of the thyroid hormone, recall that T3 and T4 are released from the lumen to the cell and then to the blood. Now let's focus on how T3 and T4 act on their target tissues. Okay, so we have T3 and T4 circulating in the blood. Now T4 is far more abundant than T3 because it is more stable in the blood. Okay, so now we have a cell here, T4 then enters the cell and the enzyme 5-D-iodinase will convert this T4 into T3. And T3 is the more active hormone. T3 will then act on an intracellular receptor, ultimately leading to actions on the nucleus and protein synthesis. Okay, so now let's say you have too much thyroid hormone. So you have too much T4 in the cell. So this enzyme, instead of activating T4 to T3, it will deactivate T4 into reverse T3. And this is the cell's way of handling excess thyroid hormone, and it can deactivate it. So now it's important to recognize that the follicles of the thyroid are stimulated by TSH. And high TSH levels will actually increase the uptake of iodine into the follicle, and therefore increase T3 and T4 production and secretion. So let's demonstrate this. Recall that you have the hypothalamus, which releases TRH, thyrotropin-releasing hormone, and you have the anterior pituitary, which releases TSH. TSH will then act on the thyroid follicle, and it will act on a TSH receptor. And this will stimulate the sodium iodine symporter, so bringing in iodine, creating iodide, and then of course you'll create more T3 and T4 and have that in the blood. And this is all upregulated by TSH. So if you have too much T3 and T4, it will actually negatively feedback to inhibit the anterior pituitary and inhibit the hypothalamus, thereby decreasing TRH and TSH. Okay, so let's summarize this section on thyroid hormone synthesis and regulation. Starting in the hypothalamus, we release TRH, which will travel down the hypophysial portal system to the anterior pituitary, stimulating the release of TSH. TSH will then act on the thyroid gland to promote thyroid hormone synthesis and release, more T4 than T3. Once in the blood, 99.9% .9 of thyroid hormone is bound to carrier proteins, but 0.1% is free and active. T3 is more physiologically active than T4, but T4 has a longer half-life, thus acting as a constant reserve that can either be converted into T3 or reverse T3 by the peripheral tissues, depending on their need. Okay, now we have thyroid hormone reaching the peripheral tissue, and it's ready for action. So how does it end up affecting its target cells? Well, first, it'll bind to intracellular receptors in the nucleus. T3 has a much higher affinity for these intracellular receptors than T4, hence it's more physiologically active. Once thyroid hormone binds to its intracellular receptor in the nucleus, 
The complex of thyroid hormone and its receptor will act as a transcription factor to modulate the expression of many genes, very similar to the manner in which steroid hormones work, i.e. the thyroid hormone and receptor complex will bind to thyroid response elements on DNA and either turn up or turn down the expression of many different genes. Alright, cool. In general, the genes transcribed will all increase metabolic rate of the target cell. For example, one of the most important effects of thyroid hormone is to increase the expression and activity of sodium-potassium ATPase, which is the most important determinant of basal metabolic rate. Okay, so now let's say there's a female patient with a history of psychiatric illness. She is abusing levothyroxine, and she's using this to lose weight. So just to review, levothyroxine is simply exogenous T4. And it's typically used in patients with low thyroid hormone levels in order to compensate. So given her excess ingestion of T4 or levothyroxine, what would happen to the levels of T3, T4, TSH, and reverse T3? So to start off, if she's taking lots of T4, this will then inhibit the hypothalamus from releasing TRH, so they would have decreased TRH, and that would inhibit the anterior pituitary from releasing TSH, so that would be low as well. This will then cause a decreased production of T3 and T4, so of course T3 levels will be low, but as for T4, the production of T4 will be low, but the patient has lots of exogenous T4, as we mentioned, lots of levothyroxine, so T4 levels will actually be high. But what will happen to this reverse T3 level? So recall that in the cell, high levels of T4 can then be converted to reverse T3 to deactivate it. And so as you have an excess of T4, more reverse T3 will be created. So our reverse T3 will be high. So in summary, you'll have decreased TSH, decreased T3 or triiodotyrosine, increased T4, and increase reverse T3. Okay, let's do another example. Let's say a patient comes in with chronic fatigue, thinning hair and weight gain, and a family history of Hashimoto's. And just as a review, Hashimoto's is a common autoimmune form of hypothyroidism. So with this patient, you are concerned that she has primary hypothyroidism. So the question is, what would be the levels of TSH? T3, T4, and reverse T3 in this patient. So if she has primary hypothyroidism, you'd expect the level of T3 and T4 to be low, and the hypothalamus with these low levels of T3 and T4 would actually begin to release increased levels of thyrotropin-releasing hormone, so TRH would be high, and this would then cause the anterior pituitary to release more TSH, so thyroid-stimulating hormone would be high. And as far as reverse T3, recall that in the cell, if you have T4, an excess would mean you'd create lots of T3, but if you have low T4, more of the T4 will actually be going to T3, because the 5-deiodinase would want to create more thyroid hormone, not deactivate it. So with decreased levels of T4, we'd actually have decreased levels of reverse T3. So as a review, you will have increased levels of TSH, decreased levels of T3, decreased levels of T4, and decreased levels of reverse T3 in this patient with primary hypothyroidism.
Now let's start to think about the clinical workup of thyroid issues. Let's say you have a patient complaining of symptoms like fatigue and weight gain and cold intolerance and constipation and hair loss. Well, here you're thinking about underlying hypothyroidism. Or flip the script and they're complaining of symptoms like diarrhea and weight loss and palpitations and sweating, all suggesting hyperthyroidism. So how are we going to work up these patients? Well, either way, your first test should always be the TSH. TSH is the best initial test, period. Why is that? TSH levels change exponentially relative to linear changes in thyroid hormone levels. So TSH is a very sensitive test for thyroid disorders. High TSH would suggest hypothyroidism, whereas low TSH suggests hyperthyroidism. And for this reason, we also monitor the TSH in patients on thyroid hormone replacement to ensure that they're in a therapeutic range. Okay, so TSH is the best initial test for thyroid issues. Let's say you see an abnormal TSH, either high or low. What's the next step? Well, from what I've seen in practice, you'll confirm the thyroid issue by running a full thyroid panel. However, for the boards, we don't actually need to perform a full thyroid panel. Instead, we can just check the free T4 to get all the information we need. Well, why is that? Well, remember that it's only the free T4 that matters because that's the active hormone. If they have normal free T4, then they're euthyroid, period. But if they have abnormal free T4, then they're not euthyroid. We could also choose to check the total T4, but that may change depending on the amount of thyroid carrier protein in the blood, like TBG levels. Okay, so let's run through a couple of examples. Let's say that TSH was high and free T4 was low. What condition should you be thinking about here? Well, this is classic primary hypothyroidism indicating an issue with the thyroid gland itself. There's plenty of TSH trying to stimulate the thyroid gland, but it's just not producing very much. So what would you do here? Well, simple. You replace what they're missing, i.e. treat with levothyroxine. But you may also want to do some additional workup of hypothyroidism, like looking for autoantibodies. Okay, next example. Let's say that TSH was low and free T4 was high. What are you thinking about here? Well, this is a case of hyperthyroidism, so what do we do next? Well, here we need to find the underlying cause of the hyperthyroidism, and our next test to perform is the RAIU scan, or the radioactive iodine uptake scan. So how does that work? RAIU helps to differentiate between causes of hyperthyroidism. Patients will swallow a radioactive iodine pill, or a compound called sodium protectinitate, and then we can follow where the radio-labeled particles go with imaging. As we mentioned before, the thyroid gland takes up the vast, vast majority of iodine or protectinitate in the blood. Within the thyroid gland, it can either have diffuse uptake or focal uptake. So why does this matter? Diffuse uptake of the radio-labeled iodine suggests that the whole thyroid gland is involved in hyperthyroidism, like in Graves' disease, whereas focal uptake indicates that just one or a few little spots are causing the hyperthyroidism, like in toxic adenoma or multinodular goiter. We call the spots that light up in the scan hot nodules. And as a general rule, hot nodules are never really malignant. But cold nodules, i.e. nodules seen on RAIU with very limited iodine uptake, are concerning for thyroid malignancy. When discovered, thyroid nodules should be better characterized with ultrasound. And if there are concerning findings on ultrasound, then you'll do an ultrasound-guided fine needle aspiration biopsy, and a pathologist will take a direct look at the tissue. We use a fine needle for these biopsies because the thyroid is very vascular and therefore very bloody, like we mentioned earlier. 
Okay, so to summarize, here are the keys to workup of thyroid disorders. The first test will always be the TSH. Then you confirm the abnormality by checking the free T4. Then, if there's hypothyroidism, i.e. high TSH, low T4, you just replace what's missing, i.e. give the patient levothyroxine. But if it's hyperthyroidism, i.e. low TSH, high free T4, you definitely need to get to the bottom of the issue. So you perform one more test, which is the RAIU. If a nodule is noted on the RAIU, you'll get a better look at it with ultrasound. And if it has concerning findings, you'll take a sample with a fine needle. To close out the episode, we have a board-style practice question. So here we go. A 16-year-old girl presents to her pediatrician demanding a full thyroid workup because she's gained 5 pounds in the last 2 months. Other than occasional fatigue, she has no other symptoms. Four months ago, the patient started birth control with a Nexplanon implant. The pediatrician gently explains that her weight gain is most likely a consequence of the birth control. However, the patient becomes argumentative, claiming that a TV doctor told his viewers to demand thyroid testing. She also mentions that her grandfather had, quote, thyroid issues too. After more back and forth, her pediatrician reluctantly agrees to do thyroid testing. At follow-up, one week later, her physician reviews the results of her testing, which showed normal TSH, low total T4, normal free T4, and normal free T3. Which of the following provides the best explanation for these lab results? Is it A, subclinical hypothyroidism, B, thyroxine binding globulin deficiency, C, medication side effect, or D, Hashimoto's thyroiditis? And the correct answer is B, thyroglobulin binding deficiency, or TBG deficiency. This may have been a tricky one, so let's work our way through it one by one. This patient is being a little aggressive because Dr. Oz told her to demand thyroid testing from her doctor because of a little weight gain. However, she has no other symptoms other than occasional fatigue, which is very nonspecific, and in a teenager is probably due to poor sleep, anxiety, maybe anemia. Regardless, her presentation could be caused by a hundred different things, not just thyroid issues. But the pediatrician decides to be a pushover that day and performs the lab testing, which does reveal something interesting, but it certainly doesn't confirm her suspicions. This patient has normal TSH and normal free T3 and T4. Thus, she has a normal thyroid, period. Instead, what's interesting is the low total thyroid hormone. So how do we explain that? Well, the best explanation among the answer choices is TBG deficiency. With TBG deficiency, you don't have much thyroxine-binding globulin in the blood, which limits the total amount of thyroid hormone in the blood. But they still have normal amounts of active free T3 and T4. Thus, these patients are euthyroid. When this diagnosis is suspected, again by low total T4, but normal TSH and free thyroid, you should follow up by checking the TBG levels to confirm that they're low. Additionally, TBG deficiency may actually explain her vague family history of thyroid issues. However, her case is more likely to be acquired or from partial TBG deficiency or maybe a new mutation because familial cases are actually X-linked, so it's more likely to show up in males. TBG deficiency is relatively rare in the general population, but you need to understand that these patients are euthyroid, so they have a great prognosis and all that's needed is reassurance. You should also educate the patient about TBG deficiency so they know what's going on and so they can avoid misdiagnosis in the future by other providers. Okay, cool. So for the other answer choices, subclinical hypothyroidism was probably the most distracting. Subclinical hypothyroidism has normal total and free T4, but slightly elevated TSH, like maybe around 5.5-ish. 
The normal range is around 0.4 to 4 or 0.5 to 5, depending on the lab. Usually, the patients are asymptomatic, hence subclinical. This finding in a patient may herald the onset of true hypothyroidism, especially if they have elevated thyroid autoantibodies, but our patients' labs weren't consistent with this diagnosis. The next answer choice, Nexplanon. Nexplanon is etonogestrel, a progestin-only implant for contraception. Her Nexplanon birth control probably explains her weight gain, but it doesn't explain the abnormal labs, which is what the question asked for. Progesterone probably doesn't affect TBG synthesis very much in the liver, but there are some studies that may show that it slightly increases the free T4, which would have the opposite effect of her suspicions. Factors that we know will influence the TBG levels include increased estrogen levels, like in pregnancy or in patients on combined OCPs. Estrogen induces TBG production by the liver and thus raises total T4, but it won't appreciably change the free T4. Or, on the other hand, exogenous androgens and low protein states, like in hepatic dysfunction or nephrotic syndrome, will decrease TBG production. But again, these will have normal free T4, or they may transiently, minorly affect the free thyroid hormone. Okay, and to rule out the last answer choice, Hashimoto's, she doesn't have true clinical features of hypothyroidism, plus her TSH and free hormone levels are normal, so Hashimoto's wouldn't explain what's going on with this patient. Okay, so that's it for the explanation of that rather tricky question, and we've arrived at the end of the episode. So I hope you enjoyed it, I hope you learned something, and I'll see you all next time.